The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, we start with the government facing growing calls from its own backbenchers to drop that two-metre social distancing rule in England. MPs, including the former Cabinet Minister, Sir Ian Duncan-Smith, and Damien Green, say it's essential for the economy. And now the Daily Telegraph says the Prime Minister is considering reducing it to one metre, which is in line with guidance from the World Health Organisation. But the local government minister, Simon Clark insists we're not at that stage yet. We all want to get children back in schools, but we are constrained at this point by what the science is telling us. And, you know, we're not doing this on a whim. We're doing it because we believe very sincerely that we have a public duty here to make this work and to reflect the best guidance that we're receiving. Meanwhile, criticism continues to rain down over the government's handling of the coronavirus crisis. Yesterday, the UK's top scientists said the government made a string of failures in its approach. Standing next to Prime Minister Boris Johnson at the Daily News conference, Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty admitted that his greatest regret was the UK's slow response. At the same time, Labour leader Keir Starmer has criticised the government's efforts to get children back into the classroom, accusing ministers of mismanagement. Well, Shadow Health Secretary Jonathan Ashworth agrees. Yes, we've got a public health crisis, we've got an economic crisis, and now we've got an education crisis because the government haven't shown the leadership to put in place measures so our children can go back to school. And I think that is a real abdication of their responsibility to our children who ultimately are the future of this country. Well, that was the Shadow Health Secretary, Jonathan Ashworth. Well, joining us now is his colleague, Sam Tarry, who's a Labour MP for Ilford South. Sam, good to have you. Uh, first of all, let's start on the two-metre rule. Is it time to start cutting that down and letting business get going again? I'll be honest, I'm very nervous um, about this happening. Uh, I think that, you know, particularly representing a community that has a very large uh, ethnic minority population, um, I think there's a lot of fear in the community about the impact of going too far and too fast. Um, I just think it still strikes me that if you think back to those early days, you know, news reports from Italy, you know, just looked so grim. We thought, well, we can't possibly let ourselves get into that situation. Fast forward to kind of three months later, and we've got the highest death rate ever in Europe. In fact, I think last week had a couple of days when we had or more deaths than the rest of Europe combined. And so I am quite nervous. Look, I do understand one big part of my job over the last couple of months has been working very closely with not just local authority, but local businesses to ensure the policy design coming out of Whitehall actually met their needs. And, you know, we had some success in trying to change a few things. So I do understand that business needs to get back on its feet and do so as fast as possible. 
comes down to a choice of saving lives, and that's going to always be my priority. And the science has just not been demonstrated by the government, unfortunately, yet again. Well, but but the point in that, I mean, you mentioned there about business and, and the problems there, but also a lot of the ordinary individuals, workers with jobs, I imagine, Sam, many of your constituents will be having jobs in, uh, for example, pubs or restaurants or things like that, which simply can't work, they say, with the two-metre rule. With the one-metre rule, they probably could. Yeah, and look, I totally get that. I mean, you know, I've got uh, one of my favourite local pubs in Ilford uh, is a long-standing kind of uh, establishment run by the Irish community. And, you know, I've been in touch with them about ensuring they've got the right sort of government support and, you know, different issues with some of the visas, some of the staff that were here working. And I know they'd love to be able to open again, no doubt about it. And the same for a whole range of different restaurants in our kind of main local restaurants or district. But, you know, again, it's about that risk, you know, if the government can come forward and, as they say, ensure that we're led by the science. Because, say, for example, it was yesterday, Professor Neil Ferguson, he said that if the government had gone into lockdown a week earlier, there would have been 20,000, i.e. half the number almost, fewer deaths. Now, that's really, really troubling. And so what worries me is that I think if we are, it seems that there's been a battle ongoing in government, those who want to reboot the economy and do so as quickly as possible, whereas those that have been more cautious because they feel that both the science is not leading us as quickly in that direction and the health consequences could be really dramatic. And I don't want to be in a situation where, you know, for the sake of a few more weeks and a little bit more evidence, we end up in a second peak of the coronavirus this autumn in the midst of the usual winter flu uh, situation anyway. What about that phrase being led by the science? Because now we're seeing key government scientific figures putting their hands up and saying a few weeks ago we got it wrong. What's to say that they're not doing that now? Should that influence the government's approach to how they take things forward? Well, look, I mean, I've, I've criticised Matt Hancock directly in the House of Commons. You know, I got up and challenged him very early on over their so-called herd immunity strategy, which they then denied. It was clear to most people observing them there had been a big U-turn in terms of that strategy. There were different times they were quoting evidence from places like Sweden, only for a week later to be shown that actually the rate of death in Swedish care home was one of the worst comparatively uh, of any country. Um, it has been a bit shambolic. You know, I'm not going to pull my punches here. I, you, you, you want to be able to have confidence in what the government and its scientific advisors are saying. And, you know, this government started um, in a strong position in terms of confidence in it. You know, and I said it as a Labour MP. And that's just been absolutely shredded over the last few weeks. And I think the sort of final straw, um, surely the stuff around Dominic Cummings and his involvement on the SAGE committee. Now, as far as I know, he's not a scientific advisor. Um, and then it transpires that someone in his family is actually running a scientific um, you know, outfit that's involved in some of the testing processes. So there's a whole range of questions that I think have really shattered government, you know, the confidence in government at the moment. And I would like to be able to listen to our scientific advisors, but we as a Labour Party have also set up our own panel of expert advisors and have got some of the top world-class people involved on that so that we are not just listening to what the government's chief advisor and medical officer is saying, but we're also getting secondary advice, uh, you know, second opinion, as it were, on everything that's happening. Yeah. Sam, what about the schools issue? Because that's a vexed one. And I suppose you could say... 
because the government's in a way backed off from what it was trying to do, perhaps in the face of pressure uh, from science, but also, of course, from teachers, parents too, in a way, does that not show perhaps the government's taking this all, all, all on board and being more cautious? Well, I hope so. I mean, I think they realise that, I mean, take, for example, my sort of local uh, authority and myself, you know, most of the head teachers uh, and the local authority had said that they would really stand against anyone being fined if they didn't send their kids back to school. 70% of the schools didn't, decide not to open anyway. You know, obviously the ones that were open, the key workers were open anyhow. But the point being that there was a conscious decision across political leadership in consultation with trainings and the community. I mean, I've done a Zoom call, 600 parents joined the Zoom call from my local area. And I think, you know, look at different, different parts of the country. You know, if you're an MP in the northern part of England where the R8, you know, quite quickly was back above one uh, quite recently, you know, they were the first to say, right, we're shutting schools. A lot of places didn't even get to the point of opening them. I think they have had to listen. I think they've, they've, they've had to listen, in fact, because of two key things. One, they're really badly prepared for the practicality of children returning to school. I mean, I think parents were just often, I found this sort of laughing at the idea that, you know, you'd be able to get kids at primary school to, to adhere to social distancing. Um, I just don't think any teachers or parents thought that that was going to be really possible. I think, secondly, um, the trade unions set out a pretty fair set of different um, asks in terms of key tests that had to be met. I think most parents mm. ended up supporting that. And then you had a situation where actually they were representing both teachers and quite a large proportion of parents were against what the government was going to do. And then I think as they started to implement it, clearly right. you know, we had a situation when the R8 started to go up in certain parts of the country. They had to backtrack really rapidly. I just think it, it, it's, it's a bit like the PPE stuff. You know, people are saying that these problems you need to listen and not listening then doing something yeah. symbolically and then having to rush to try and sort it out. What about Labour? We've had a couple of months now of a Keir Starmer leadership. Has he managed to move the party on from being one that's tarred by anti-Semitism? Yes, I think he has, actually. And, you know, look, this is a, not a quick process. I think it's a long, long process to rebuild relationships with not just the Jewish community, but I think other communities where, you know, we need to kind of re-establish the more positive uh, links. I think the internal processes in the party um, have, you know, been got a grip on, so things have been speeded up, and actually things have been improving, you know, previously as well. I think that that's meant that, for example, over the last few weeks, if there are outstanding cases of people who were guilty of anti-Semitism, meant that a load of people have been to the party as they rightly should. Uh, I think at the other, the other, on the, at the same time, he's made the time to reach out and have a whole series of different conversations and to do so on a regular basis with the Jewish community and um, both kind of national stakeholders, also, you know, lower level community stakeholders, both him and Angela Vane have really made that a massive priority. And I think that's a great starting point. I think obviously there's more to be done and that's going to be an ongoing process of rebuilding and healing that relationship. But he has made a solid start on it. Well, Sam, let me ask you a general question on, on Labour, because we, YouGov poll, the latest one, shows that uh, many people see Keir Starmer as a good prime minister in waiting, but they still don't quite see Labour as ready for government. So what do you think has got to change, briefly? Well, look, I mean, you know, we're only six months off the back of a really difficult election for Labour, where, you know, a whole range of different issues came to a, a head, and, you know, clearly punished for a position uh, by certain parts of the electorate on 
I think at the moment there's a number of things. I think one, demonstrating tough and constructive leadership. I think it's been doing that. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We start with Brexit as the EU has accused the UK of cherry picking. Remember that one? In order to maintain economic benefits similar to that of an EU member after it leaves the bloc. So Michel Barnier, the chief Brexit negotiator for the EU, has expressed bewilderment that the UK won't extend the negotiation deadline, standing very firm, despite the predicted economic fallout from the coronavirus. Comes ahead of high-level talks on Friday when the European Parliament is going to urge the UK to revise its negotiating position with a level of urgency after months of talks we have reported on this very programme have yielded little consensus. Yeah, it's been a really difficult time, hasn't it? Because it's it's how on earth do we actually marry this with all the problems, of course, that have been uh, said mm. with the issue of uh, of dealing with the virus. So what else is making the news? Uh, we have got a Guardian scoop on this one, uh, talking about the European Parliament potentially able to veto any trade deal between the UK and EU that lacks robust safeguards to ensure fair competition and strong standards on the environment and workers' rights. So the Guardian's seen this leaked document that says a resolution is going to be put to a vote tomorrow and that underlines the implicit threat to block the trade deal. Surely this will put a lot of backs up in Westminster. It urges the British government to revise its negotiating position. It says a level playing field is the necessary condition for the European Parliament to give its consent to a trade deal. It's, of course, the message we hear time and time again from Brussels. Yeah, it's a difficult time. How on earth does that all work and where does it all go? Uh, and what else is happening at the moment? Uh, then we have got a warning from the Institute of Directors saying businesses are going to have dramatically scaled back investment plans for the rest of the year. So starting to get an idea of the long term, the medium to long term impact of the coronavirus impact. This co it's confidence tracker that it does every so now and then uh, revealed the crisis had driven down investment among its members to a record low of minus 43%. It also found hiring tensions plumbed new debts last month, despite some easing of the lockdown and improvement in business confidence. But it's something that, uh, that Rishi Sunak is going to be wanting to watch very carefully because, of course, we've got the furlough programme in place. He said that will not continue. But the whole point of it is to avoid unemployment. And if you get that, then essentially all that time, all that money, crucially, has been wasted. So that's an economic forecast from the Institute of Directors. And then finally, we have this row over the Oxford statue of Cecil Rhodes, uh, the head of Oxford University, warning against hiding our history, as they put it. Uh, protesters want to pull down the statue at Oriel College of the 19th century imperialists, saying it's a symbol of racism and imperialism. It's a long-running thing at Oriel, even before the, uh, the Black Lives Matter 
story sort of became a national issue. This has been running for years. Uh, the Vice Chancellor Louise Richardson told BBC that the views of the past had been seen in the context of the time. It follows the removal of statues of slave trader Edward Colston in Bristol and noted slaveholder Robert Milligan in London. So it sounds like Oxford a little bit more resistant to bringing these statues down. Yeah, we're even hearing that the statue of Baden-Powell in uh, Poole has been uh, removed temporarily, at least, apparently, to keep it safe because of the, uh, I suppose, doubts about some of his record. Anyway, let's talk about what's going to happen on Monday because it's going to see the reopening of non-essential shops across England. And that's obviously welcome to many, not least those who work in those shops, whose jobs have been at risk, of course, while the lockdown continues. But there are also risks to shop workers, health risks from the virus, of course, in what will almost inevitably be crowded conditions. Well, joining us now, very pleased to say, is Paddy Lillis, who's uh, Secretary General at USDOR, the Union of Shop Distributive and Allied Workers. Paddy, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, let me ask you first, are your members welcoming this return to non-essential shops opening? I think the vast majority of people are welcoming uh, getting back to some form of normality. Um, and clearly, for the economy, it's good to get the retail workers back. The key for us, clearly, is the safety of our members and the safety of the public. And it's fair to say that with the food retail, we worked um, closely with the British Retail Consortium to put together a very comprehensive guide um, for the safe opening of food retail. And that's now <clears throat> going to be the guidance for the non-essential uh, retail opening on Monday. What, what sort of assurances have you had from the government then, Paddy, about workers and that they can come back and do this sort of thing safely again? Well, look, the, the, the safety measures are there. Uh, there has to be risk assessments done. The government's been very clear on this. They'll have to work with the trade unions to ensure them risk assessments are done and they have to be published on the government portal, but also have to be published on the employer's own website. So we are fairly confident that the vast majority of employers will ensure that everything's done to keep the public and their staff safe. And we've been monitoring it very, very closely. But if the, the non-food goes the same way as the food retail, then we'll be reasonably happy because that went exceptionally well. Uh, the, the issue for us, of course, is uh, because they're non-essential retail, then there, there's obviously childcare issues because the schools aren't open and the vast majority of retail workers are, are women with, uh, with, with family commitments. And therefore, there's a, there's a big difficulty here and the schools aren't open. Uh, therefore, uh, how, do, how, how do they go to work? So again, we'll be talking to the Chancellor to see what measures can be put in place to assist those in terms of the furlough, uh, etc. And as we know it as well, the, anybody that's on the sick, the statutory sick pay is, is very, very low and, and is certainly not going to maintain families. Well, let's let's dive into the details of some of that, because it is very interesting. You mentioned the furlough scheme there, and we do know that the idea is that the furlough scheme gradually comes off. Uh, is that working? I mean, are, are a number of your members likely to perhaps reduce the amount they're getting from the government and get more from their shops? Is that the way it's going to work? Well, it is. It, firstly, it is working. And, and I would say, again, we welcome the intervention of government uh, around the furlough scheme, the, the uh, interruption loans, the bounce-back loans, etc. Everything that's been done has been unprecedented to help and assist uh, employers and, and employees through this, this pandemic so that put, put, you get that put in record. The difficulty is um, the non-essential retail is coming in later than the food retail. So they've still got their bills to pay. They've still got uh, everything else to pay. And as we move forward again, we have the hospitality industry again 
uh, where the furlough scheme is working the same for everyone. Some will be disadvantaged in terms of uh, the timing of it all. So we're we're still uh, talking to the government uh, to try to ensure there's a maximum flexibility so that workers and employers uh, can see a pathway through this that safeguards the economy and safeguards these businesses. And speaking of flexibility, what about those members and those workers who are parents? How is that going to work if they get sent back to their jobs, but the schools are still not taking children? Uh, they, they end up with childcare issues. Well, we're obviously in discussions with the employers around this and we're asking for a common sense approach to this. Uh, where people can make childcare arrangements, uh, then, then then they should be doing that. But we are uh, trying to ensure that the the um, the job retention scheme uh, continues for a couple of extra weeks to give them that time uh, to get themselves in a position to go back to work. Those who can't, and there will be some who can't, then and we would ask the employers to continue paying them uh, until such times as, as as we can get back to some form of, of some form of normality. And to be fair, the vast majority of employers are, are taking this approach. But Paddy, I guess we're talking about there are people who still have jobs, but there must be a number of your members who are either going to be coming back permanently on short time, even if they don't want to, and some who just presumably the shops have gone, they haven't got jobs. Is, is that a lot of people? Well, we, we, we've seen this week, uh, we, we, we've seen uh, another couple of thousand uh, uh, has been made, made, made redundant through closures. Uh, we've seen recently Oasis Warehouse Laura Ashley, Debenhams closing some stores, and this will be a continuation. And longer term, uh, we need we need the urge to look at this. We have called for a, an industrial strategy for retail as, as far back as two years ago. Uh, and again, working with the British Retail Consortium and the Association of Convenience Stores uh, and employers and local authorities, we really do need to be looking at, you know, a recovery plan for, for retail. All this coronavirus has done is accelerated what was already a problem in retail. And we've got three categories in terms of employers at the minute. We have those who who will get through this pandemic, who, who have got an online presence as well, which will help sort of stabilise their finances. There's those who will, will not get through it, uh, and we're struggling anyway. Um, and we're seeing that already where they're going on there. And there'll be others who just need that extra bit of intervention, that bit of flexibility in terms of the loans, um, etc., that will come through, but they need that, that assistance. So there has to be a, a, a longer-term uh, approach <clears throat> in terms of looking at There needs to be a level playing field in taxation between online and bricks and mortar. Uh, there needs to be a look at rent values and lease arrangements for commercial landlords, etc. Uh, local authorities need proper funding for high streets and town centres, looking at uh, sort of uh, car parking, looking at public transport, etc., there needs to be a look at in terms of what this town centres look like going forward. They're not going to be what we've seen in the past. There has to be a degree of living, sort of working and socialising in the town centres, as you see across Europe. <clears throat> and we also need, quite clearly from a union point of view, a new deal for workers. What we've seen through this pandemic is that retail is no longer the invisible and, and, and employer, invisible employees. They are key workers. Um, and therefore deserve to be better remunerated, better paid, but guaranteed ours. Uh, and again, these are all the things that we'll be working with government on to ensure that uh, the, the workers are not forgotten in this crisis. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha 
for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.